I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Developing a Rule of Life. Every disciple of Jesus is to somehow learn, adapt, and implement the lifestyle of Jesus into our own time and place, our own season of life and stage of apprenticeship. A rule of life is an ancient practice from church history that enables us to go about that work well. But even before you write your own rule of life, there are forces at work to destroy it. Sometime around 3 p.m. Eastern Time on January 22nd, 2008, a housekeeper named Teresa and a masseuse, a masseuse, a masseuse named Diana arrived at a loft in Manhattan. And moments later, they discovered their client unconscious in his bed. They called his friend, who called the police. They then realized that he wasn't actually breathing at all, so they called 911. They attempted CPR to no avail. Paramedics arrived and were similarly unsuccessful, so at 3.36 p.m., Heath Ledger was pronounced dead in his apartment. His body was removed, and that was that. The subsequent uh, autopsy reported, and I quote, we have concluded that the manner of death is accident resulting from the abuse of prescribed medications. It was a drug overdose. In July of that same year, 2008, the world responded uh, profoundly to Mr. Ledger's final appearance in a film, which was his acclaimed take on the Joker, of all things, and Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Ledger won an Oscar and the Golden Globe uh, for the performance, which Christopher Nolan, director of The Dark Knight, accepted on his behalf. And he said this, after Heath passed on, you saw an extraordinary hole ripped in the future of cinema. And he said this because he was aware of not only Mr. Ledger's uh, immense talent, but his potential, a potential that will never be realized. And this is sadly a very familiar story to most of us, a story that we can tell about any number of people who are famous or otherwise. Um, This week it got me thinking about another gentleman named Trent Reznor, who's a dude who's been perhaps my uh, greatest creative hero consistently over the years from age 12 to age 36 and counting. In the mid-90s, suffering from anxiety and depression, Reznor had become an alcoholic and an avid cocaine user to cope with new fame and emotional unhealthiness. And then in 2000, Reznor injected a large amount of what he believed to be cocaine but turned out to be heroin. He was, like Heath, discovered unconscious in his room, not breathing. But Trent Reznor was resuscitated, having been encouraged to beat his addiction by friend and mentor David Bowie, Reznor entered and completed rehab. And like Bowie, the years post-drug use were marked by some of his most accomplished and acclaimed creative output. He made more albums, he started new bands, he won Oscars and Golden Globes for his work scoring films, and he's still doing all of that today. Together, Bowie and Reznor alone are enough to destroy this ridiculous but pervasive myth that drugs somehow make one more creative rather than less so. But... Trent Reznor's story could have ended in 2000 when he was found not breathing in his room. And I've been thinking about those stories in the last few weeks, Uh, maybe a a story about a movie star abusing prescription meds or or a rock star confusing heroin with cocaine sound unrelatable to you as they do with me, but this is a human story. It's the human story, really. At least that's what we believe, we meaning those of us who follow this teacher called Jesus of Nazareth. Think about it. We believe, first of all, that God made us. Remember that part? 
God, in the poetic language of the scriptures, knit us together in our mother's womb. So there's not just craftsmanship, but there's intimacy and there's purpose to it. Well, there's more than that. God uniquely qualified each of us to do stuff. So he's wired our brains so that some of us make things and some of us parent children and some of us teach people and some of us help make things work better and some of us lead people and some of us support people or whatever it might be. Each of us has been invited to participate in contributing goodness or shalom to the world, whether that's by funding nonprofits or founding companies or as a parent or as a plumber, whatever it might be. And that would all be great if we weren't also massively screwed up. See, the same story that has this bit about God knitting us together and inviting us to collaborate with him and to do good in the world, that same story also tells us that the world is broken and so are we. It's actually a really bad situation. Part of us, part of us is compelled toward God. Every single human being. We know innately that something is missing. We have a universal sense, all of us, that there is a way that things should be, and most of all this isn't that. And we're the reason. All of us contribute to injustice and disorder in ways that are big and small. So to fix this mess, God should get rid of us, but he doesn't want to do that, to be clear. He wants to rescue us and the world, even though we're the ones who broke it. And all of that is in the story that people like us who follow Jesus use to understand the universe and our place in it. There's a lot more to it than that, obviously, but it's in there. So along comes Jesus as a teacher, and more than just a teacher, as God in the flesh. And he's like, look, I will do the rescuing, but there's more to it than that. I can give you freedom here and now, not just later after you're dead, which is why most of Jesus' teachings have much more to do with how one lives than what one believes intellectually. Most of Jesus' teachings were about relationships or how to treat one another or about money or sexuality or community or marriage or spiritual warfare. It's why Jesus invited every person to follow him, meaning follow in my example. Don't just believe in him, do that, but be like him, live like he does. It's why we, as apprentices of Jesus, have for centuries upon centuries now been meeting this way regularly in community to figure out how do we do that exactly. So at Van City, we talk often about the three goals of every apprentice of Jesus. The first is to just be with Jesus, goal number one, so that over time you eventually become more like Jesus and then eventually you can do the types of things that Jesus did. Now notice, each one of those presupposes that you believe certain things, but more pressing, each of those requires that you live a certain way. If you are going to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do the kinds of things that Jesus did, it should go without saying that this will require a thoughtful, deliberate, and disciplined effort on your part, on my part. So that's why we have a church. It's why we live in community. It's why we study the scriptures and why we work to cultivate intimacy and connection with God's spirit through worship and prayer and communion, the spiritual disciplines, because we want to follow Jesus. We want to follow Jesus well. All of us, if we're being honest, can probably admit that we won't organically just happen upon the lifestyle of Jesus. Things like prayer and community and silence and solitude and fasting and church and spiritual warfare and sharing the gospel. For most of us, 
those aren't the kinds of things that materialize in our day-to-day lives with little to no effort. Which, of course, begs the very old question, how do we actually implement the lifestyle, the spiritual rhythms of Jesus, into our time and place, our life context, our season of life and stage of apprenticeship? What do the spiritual rhythms of Jesus look like adapted into the life of a school teacher? or an airline pilot, or a young mom, or an empty nester, or an engineer, or an artist, or whoever it might be. So to answer that question, the early church suggested an ancient paradigm called a rule of life. A rule of life is a working document that takes the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, and translates those things into your life via practices. And each of those practices you organize by rhythms. Those rhythms are daily or weekly or monthly or quarterly or even annually so that eventually your rule of life begins to sound something like every single day I pray and read the scriptures, every single month I fast once a month or something like that, or every year I make an annual budget so that I can actively practice generosity and simplicity. You write this rule in pencil, not in ink, so to speak anyway, because it will likely evolve with your season of life, and as you mature in your discipleship, those practices will need to change in the rate at which you do them. Now, I am not, by nature, an organized or efficient person, so I don't advocate for the rule of life because I just love lists, so this thing speaks my language. That's not me at all, actually, but I have found that this ancient practice can be transforming. I think there's something here for us as a church, something with the power to shape our lives if we let it, the power uh, to shape us into the people we want to become, that God has called us to be, um, who we are becoming both individually and as a family, as Van City Church. So tonight, the teaching series side of things comes to an end, but there will be another few weeks of practices in your Van City communities, or if you're not yet in one, you can still go online and do the practices as well as you work to write your own rule of life. If you've missed anything along the way, I would recommend going back and catching up on the podcast. I think this is something that's going to be foundational for our church. But tonight, I want to offer um, something of an epilogue to this teaching series. So turn in the New Testament to a letter that we call Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. You do a lot of talking about a thing for a few weeks, and the information starts to pile up. Lots of advice instructions, data, and stories. It's not a bad thing. I think it's actually crucial, but depending on your personality, all the promising information could set you up for unrealistic expectations. And you guys, if you know me, know that I'd prefer not to do that. I've been told several times um, that I'm the only pastor that people know who, with relative consistency, reminds his congregation of their inevitable deaths. Um, (laughs) And it's true, we, we are at some point going to die. That's just perspective, y'all. It's not to bum anyone out, that's perspective. <laughs> it's the thing I like to do at staff meetings. I was doing it just this week. We had our all-staff meeting. Everyone who works here was in having breakfast, talking through stuff. And uh, we go through some minor points on our operations list, and someone was like, well, you know, I mean, worst case scenario, we just run out of coffee. And I was like, that's not the worst case scenario. <laughs> the worst case scenario is that we die, but... There's always something worse. Again, perspective. My point is, (laughs) I'm not the uh, go-getter, optimistic, you-can-do-anything kind of personality, to a fault, I suspect. But 
I care deeply about the integrity of the things that I say up here. Um, I don't want to ever be phony or flowery or promise you something that I don't believe in myself. And I believe in adapting and implementing the lifestyle and spiritual rhythms of Jesus into our context. I believe in the transformative power of doing that. Now, as I've already said, this is an ancient and very um, simple premise that has endured centuries of church history and that has been massively formational for me personally. But even if you write a really great rule of life, even if you implement it and you get off the ground and it starts going well, there are forces at work in this world that are set against you. They can sabotage your potential to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. And you do, every one of you, have great potential. You are designed, hardwired by God, the God of the universe, with potential. And yet there are things that can cut that potential short. So let's look at a famous New Testament warning in Galatians chapter 5. Now, for context, Galatians is a letter written by someone called Paul, who after an amazing encounter with Jesus, went from violently persecuting the church of Jesus to growing the church of Jesus, and then writing most of the New Testament. So well done. See, the way of Jesus began amongst uh, first century Jews, but it was always intended to grow beyond one ethnic group and spread out amongst all people. And when that finally happened, some Jewish disciples of Jesus began to insist that these new Gentile or non-Jewish disciples of Jesus adhere to the strict laws of the Old Testament. And Paul, who was once, once a staunch proponent of that same law, who was Jewish himself, now believed that it was ridiculous to ask disciples of Jesus to keep up with the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So for the first five chapters of Galatians, Paul argues that strict adherence to the Torah or to the law has really failed to reconcile humanity to God. But where the Torah failed this Messiah called Jesus has finally succeeded, which is great news for everybody. And then in chapter five, Paul addresses an obvious pushback to his argument. If these new Christians don't keep the Torah, which is Paul is saying that they shouldn't, his opponents might ask, how will they know the right way to live? And Paul's answer is both simple and profound. He argues that they will know by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Paul says, is how Jesus is with his disciples and how he is building from them a new kind of humanity. But, Paul says, there is a word of warning here as well. So look at Galatians 5, beginning with verse 1. Actually, pardon me, verse 13. I looked at uh, numbers that weren't matching up and I was like, is this one of those times? It is one of those times. Thanks, Allie. I've done it before. Next time, yell, just you. If you see numbers that aren't reconciled, just you yell. Yeah, probably. It's a small enough room, right? Try it real quick. What would you... <laughs> it's fine. We'll talk about it later. We'll make a plan, you and I. Galatians 5, verse 13. Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Now, pause. That means you're not under the law, Paul says, but does that mean that there are no longer any guidelines for right living amongst disciples of Jesus? Keep reading. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. 
Now, the flesh, if you recall from our previous series about the, the, on the topic itself, is that broken, disordered part of your will and desire, the part of you that is bent away from God and drawn to things that destroy you and destroy the people around you in ways that are obvious and subtle. Don't indulge the flesh with your freedom, Paul says, and he goes on in verse 13, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, or all of the Torah, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So, without a Torah, what do we do to combat the flesh? Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that, listen to this, you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of the Holy Spirit, is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law, those who belong to Messiah Jesus have crucified the flesh. They've killed it with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, how can you tell if someone is operating in what the New Testament calls the flesh? Paul thinks that it's obvious, and he makes a list of easy examples according to him. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, lots of people read this as an eschatological thing, meaning Paul is saying, if you do these types of things, you won't go to heaven when you die. And while the New Testament does have a lot to say about the ways of living that have eternal consequences, that's not the primary thing Paul is addressing here. Paul means kingdom of God the way that Jesus meant kingdom of God, as God's inbreaking rule and reign in the here and now, a way of life marked by peace and love and goodness, self-sacrificial um, respect for one another and love for one another. If you operate in the flesh, then by design, you cannot operate in the spirit, and you will not experience the good rule of God over your life and your family, your community, and so on, meaning you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what will sabotage a rule of life well-planned. This is what will derail your quest for spiritual formation. It will stunt your growth and maturity as a disciple of Jesus and as a person, it will end your potential, and it will, and I quote, keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, many of uh, these things one can immediately recognize as what we call vices uh, of the flesh, habits and behaviors that corrupt our character and corrupt the world around us. Language like this, I know, sounds like uh, all fire and brimstone. 
But virtually everyone believes in a measurable difference between good and evil and that some things are one or the other. What many people don't like, on the other hand, at least in the post-enlightenment Western world, is the suggestion that this idea of good things and bad things is objective. That is, uh, not really up for interpretation. Evil doesn't vary from person to per person. In other words, evil is just evil. The popular idea, on the other hand, is, hey, it depends on you and what you believe and what works for you, which immediately becomes an unresolvable tangle of contradictions. Everyone believes in some kind of objective truth because we can't functionally carry out any other worldview. You may say you don't, but you do. We all think that there are right and wrong ways of understanding the universe and how one ought to live in it. The contradictions in arguing anything else are as apparent as they've ever been in our season of uh, outrage culture, because the same camp aggressively advocating for the whole find your own truth approach to life, or you do you, or do what makes you happy, or don't let anyone tell you otherwise, are often the same camp that are aggressively stepping into police words and ideas and enforce objective positions on sexuality or legislation or politics. And of course they are, because we all believe in some idea of right and wrong. And Paul thinks that it's obvious what differentiates the outworking of the flesh from the outworking of the spirit. And he begins on this list with sexual immorality, which is a Greek word, porneia, meaning anything and everything. It's kind of a junk drawer term in the New Testament. Anything and everything that deviates from God's good design of human sexuality as something that takes place exclusively between a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. Anything not that, whether it's pornography or fantasy or gay sex or premarital sex, it steps outside of God's goodwill and is led away by what the New Testament calls the flesh. Porn, an outrageously widespread and mostly private vice of the flesh, will destroy your best laid plans for a rule of life. Sexual fantasy, using television and film to feed fantasy, not taking your potential vulnerabilities to it very seriously, or sleeping or fooling around with a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, or failing to cultivate and work toward consistent intimacy and connection between your spouse, these things will lead you astray. And Paul even has uh, to list orgies specifically because he was writing to a different time and place. I'd like to say this goes without saying, but honestly, few things surprise me anymore. So please note Paul's inclusion of orgies on this list. The point is that sexuality outside of God's design is powerful and destructive. These things will destroy your potential, your rule of life in the immediate sense, and in the long-term sense, they will destroy you, as will their outward expressions of impurity and debauchery. So will, Paul goes on to say, idolatry, which is the tendency of humans to, make, to take a position that should belong to God only and appointing someone or something other than God in its place. And this happens to us when we live for our careers or our ambitions, or when we attempt to draw life and identity from the things that we have, or from our appearances, or from a fabricated veneer of ourselves that we project online, or when we attempt to draw life and identity from even good things, like a spouse, or from our children, or from a ministry, or good things that we do or, or, or have done. It happens when we give more attention and focus and devotion to a touchscreen than to prayer, or to the scriptures, or to the Spirit of God in us. 
I see this all the time, especially in you know, election seasons in political idolatry, when we become convinced that the fate of the world rises and falls on our preferred politicians being in power and the ones we don't like not being empowered, tearing one another apart when we disagree on who is who. When the things you love are not in the right order, your rule of life, your spiritual formation will flounder or else it will topple altogether. Our ability to follow Jesus well presupposes that we give him and him only all of our allegiance. Jesus is king, Jesus is master, savior, teacher, friend, and Lord. We are not Lord, nor are our phones, nor our careers, nor our families, nor any politician. And there are other masters or false kings waiting to enslave us as well, which makes Paul's next item on the list an interesting one. The Greek word here that my Bible translates as witchcraft is pharmakeia in Greek, and it can be translated as the use of medicine, drugs, or spells. Now, some people assume that the connection between drugs and spirituality originated in the 60s or amongst isolated tribal peoples and shamans, but the idea is really as old as the New Testament and much older. And interestingly, the New Testament never denies the reality of drugs and shamanistic practices as uh, gateways to a spiritual realm. It simply argues that these things act as doorways to the kingdom of darkness, to Satan and to demons. They never lead to the kingdom of God or to his spirit. So this last week, I was in Portland one morning having breakfast with a few friends, and we were talking about some reading that I'd been doing about the growing public discussion around uh, the allegedly therapeutic use of a, a drug called psilocybin, which is the naturally occurring psychedelic drug and what people often call magic mushrooms. So I'm telling my friends about this reading that I've been doing in a few lectures I'd listened to, and a woman in her 50s, she told me, slides up to our table, smiling and eager, and she says, oh my gosh, you guys are discussing my favorite topic, psilocybin, mushrooms. And I was like, oh, you, you don't want to be in this conversation. You're not, you're not going to like what I have to say about it. And she's like, what, what? And she was genuinely baffled. She said, I said, because I'm hostile to them. And she said, hostile? I have never in my life heard of a human being who was hostile to psychedelic mushrooms. And I thought, oh man, that's a really narrow social circle you got going on there. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you don't know anyone that's not into illegal drugs. That seems pretty narrow. And so now I'm in a predicament, you know. I have no intention of pretending to think that illegal drugs are neato with this lady. But I'm also not totally interested in getting into a discussion about spiritual warfare and demons with a stranger. You know, I'm just trying to have coffee and everything. Everyone at my table is looking at me. Uh, the way the table's set up is so that I'm against a wall. They're all facing me and the ladies right here. So I can see their faces, but she can't see their faces. And they're all looking at me like, please, let this lady go. Just nod and say, neat, you know, and send her on her way. Let this lady go. But let the mushroom lady have her morning. So I was polite, I was friendly, but I told her that I personally don't like illicit drugs, I don't like intoxicated states, I don't like drug culture, I'm just not into any of it. And this lady, whether she meant it or not, we got into this conversation about you know, allegedly beneficial uses of drugs and things like that, and she said something pretty telling, whether she meant to or not, she said, oh, I do like drugs because I like shortcuts. Um, drugs aren't a modern invention and neither is the use of natural or unnatural things 
for spiritual purposes. But in the Bible story, from cover to cover, the way that one pursues and attains intimacy with God, the way that one is formed spiritually, the, one, the way that one is healed or gains wisdom and maturity and spiritual insight is always through sobriety, which is why Paul doubles down and includes drunkenness on this same list of vices that sabotage our discipleship. See, in the Old and New Testament, any intoxicated state is a barrier to God. I can scarcely overstate how clear and consistent this thread runs through Scripture. The New Testament describes intoxicated states as indecent, as belonging to the brokenness of a fallen world or of the flesh, as leading to debauchery. It even lists unrepentant intoxication amongst the major barriers to the kingdom of God. The New Testament consistently upholds sobriety as the way that disciples of Jesus are unique, the very means by which we set our minds on Jesus. Sobriety is how we resist the devil himself. Thus, intoxication is explicitly and consistently prohibited throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, which also condemns the effects of intoxication, things like hallucinations or addiction, loss of judgment towards sin, loss of physical control, loss of wisdom, loss of financial security or control, embracing foolishness. And please listen to me on this. All of that includes everything from socially acceptable behaviors like getting tipsy or drunk on alcohol from time to time at a party or using marijuana with THC to get high to more serious sounding stuff like abusing prescription medications or eating magic mushrooms or doing cocaine or whatever it might be. Now, of course, of course, we, by we, I mean Vance City, are not anti-science or not anti-medicine in any way. There is absolutely a place for a nuanced discussion about legal medicine prescribed by doctors in trustworthy clinical settings to treat disorders of the mind and body. But even then, even then, the disciple of Jesus is to seek wisdom and discernment and the community of God and the Holy Spirit never default to drugs carelessly. And the Bible takes all of this so seriously, not because the authors were prudish or vanilla or anti-science or something like that. It's because compromising sobriety is one avenue the devil uses to destroy you. I think of 1 Peter 5 that says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour so people have asked why Van City has such a hardcore stance on weed or getting drunk or psychedelics or whatever it might be. That's why the devil is looking for someone to devour. If you think back to our uh, Fighting the World, the Flesh and the Devil series, if you were here, we argued that the devil's strategy is to use deceitful ideas that pander to our brokenness and that have become normalized in a broken society. Casual, occasional drunkenness or the normalization of getting high on weed or using psychedelics as spiritual gateways. These things are, at least to my estimation, one of the clearest examples of this strategy thriving. And despite any accusations of fundamentalism or not getting with the times, I am more than happy to take Peter's warning very seriously. Now, Maybe some of you are, like me, thinking of yourself as conveniently secure in this particular area because getting drunk or you know, smoking weed aren't really your thing personally, but you know well enough that there are other substances that enslave you. One of them, nearly all of us carry around in our pockets, and that efficient little device can destroy your rule of life as well. Other substances are used in secret, in private web browsers, 
Some of us use work as medication. Some of us use experiences or relationships to distract us and numb us and effectively silence our connection to God's spirit. Some of us simply idle through life, avoiding reality by not doing much of anything good or bad. Nine to five, eat, sleep, repeat, which is another mode of the flesh. And when we operate in the flesh, rather than out of God's spirit, we fall away to all the other things that Paul lists. Hatred, we sow seeds of discord and jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition rather than God's ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, divisiveness amongst communities and disciples of Jesus, and the like. The list just goes on and on. These things are enemies of the way of Jesus. Porn, digital addiction, getting drunk or high, anger and resentment, selfish ambition, distractions. And a rule of life in and of itself will not keep these creeping enemies at bay altogether. The rule simply facilitates something more important, which is the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul concludes his letter by contrasting this new way of being human with the old and broken way. Look down one more time at Galatians 5 if you still have your Bibles. At the end of verse 21, Paul writes of the old humanity, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Jesus have destroyed the flesh, killed it with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The habits of the old humanity, lust and intoxication, rage, all that, they dehumanize people and destroy relationships and communities. Many of you know this, sadly, from firsthand exposure or from experience. I have seen it over and over and over again. The Old Testament law expressly prohibited these things, but Jesus did more than that. He put them to death in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, so that now when a person, any person, decides to entrust their life to Jesus as master, teacher, and king, the life of Jesus can become their life as well. And when we do that, when we practice the way of Jesus, we are formed and shaped by the way of Jesus, and this produces what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, many people read that list as like a list of commands, meaning, oh, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and all that, so we should just go out there and really try to be more loving, be more joyful, be more peaceful, and so on. But the only command in this passage isn't to be more loving or joyful, it's to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the command. When you keep in step with the Spirit, your life will inevitably, like a cultivated tree, produce fruit. And that fruit will be love, joy, peace, and on and on the list goes. But that kind of thing is anything but fast or easy. I'm afraid, at the risk of disappointing the lady who interrupted my breakfast, there are no shortcuts in true formation. This symbolic fruit is, actual, is like actual fruit in that it must be grown and cultivated over time. How? In Paul's words, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey put it really well when he wrote of this text, this requires intentionality. 
we have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. As we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. How do we live by the Spirit? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? By knowing and embracing the way of Jesus in our lives. Whether we are school teachers or stay-at-home parents or artists or window washers or whatever, that's what this has been all about. Simple yet profound. What will it look like to take a thoughtful examination of your life, your context, your day-to-day rhythms, and to carefully devise for yourself a code by which you will live? I will pray at this time. I will make time for these people. I will prioritize these things. And more than that, to engage the hard work of bringing the things that we do under scrutiny so that we can remove any and all barriers between us and the Spirit, be they substances or smartphones or disordered loves. And we need each other for that. We need people to love us enough to remind us what we sometimes forget, what we often lose sight of. This is the way to life. These other things lead to death. Each of you has massive potential to impact the world for the sake of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It's this idea that when God's will is done, rather than our will, rather than the Satan's will, there is healing and restoration and justice and goodness and peace and self-sacrificial love. Maybe you feel as if your potential is insignificant compared to, you know, some movie star or CEO or a missionary or whoever it is that seems more significant in your mind, but God simply does not measure impact like we do. A quiet life led by the Spirit of God, submitted to the teachings of Jesus, a life putting away the old habits in exchange for the new, this changes the world. And some of you, I know, have been inspired in big ways by larger-than-life personalities. I sure have. Famous people known the world over. They can be inspirational. But more of you, I believe, have been impacted in more significant ways by a person in your life who was probably not famous, but who demonstrated the kindness of Jesus in some way, who lived with quiet integrity for the gospel, or who embraced self-sacrificial love, whose life was evidence of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Not because they white-knuckled it and really tried to be all those things, but because of their deep connection to the Spirit of God, they became a person of love and joy and peace. Not perfect, but they changed your world. Maybe a friend or your mom or dad, or your husband or wife, or a mentor, or someone who had no idea that they impacted you at all, think of that person for a minute, or think of those people, and then remember this, you have that potential in you. God wants that for you. He has made you a certain way for that reason. And writing out a rule of life isn't a magic paper that somehow makes that happen, but it is part of our work in keeping in step with the Spirit. A rule of life is a disciplined gesture that says, the way I order my days and priorities will reflect my love of Jesus and his calling over my life. And I will stand and fight that which seeks to enslave. I will not befriend the devouring lion. 
A rule of life is a statement that says to Jesus, our King, that though everything in this world is vying for my attention, my time, my heart, I want to give those things to you because he is better, because he is best. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do those things. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.